Hello, everybody. It's your host, Jack Healy. And today on the Gotham Sports Machine, we're talking New York baseball with my co-host, Mark Healy. And our guest today is Tim Healy, who covers the Mets for Newsday. How are you doing today, Tim? I am excellent, Jack. How are you? Uh, I'm all right. Uh, it's a bittersweet end to the year. Uh, you fall apart when you have the lead for so long in that division. It was tough to watch. I mean, the whole first half of the year, the Mets looked like a really good team. And then, boom, once once things get tough, they fell apart. And then the end of the year, they start hitting again. It's like the season's over. No one wants – it's it's like a punch in the gut when they're not in, comp, in the contention and they're hitting because it doesn't really count for anything other than contracts. So yeah. when the one guy I feel like is the most talked about when it comes to should we bring him back, is Javi Baez. I think we should. I think he was our best hitter from the day he came into New York. What do you think? You think we're going to bring him back, Tim, or no? Um, you know, it's hard to tell whether what the Mets are going to do with any given player this offseason because we don't even know yet who is going to be the person making those decisions. We won't know that until they hire their president of baseball operations, whoever that is. With Javier Baez, yes, it's a very, it's a very interesting one. Um, I would contend that your point of him being the hottest hitter since he came to New York is not true. I think he got off to a really bad or a slow start so much so that he was booed before he went on the IL. And then of course we had the whole thumbs down situation when he came back from the IL. Um, so I, I think the Mets need to be careful with Baez and it's actually good that they're going to bring in somebody from the outside to make this decision because you don't want to get seduced by a hot few weeks from Javier Baez, as good as those few weeks have been. It's easy to forget that Baez in eight years in the major leagues has an OPS plus of 105. 100 is average. So 105 is barely above average. So I tend to think Javier Baez is overrated. Um, I think he has left a good impression on Mets fans, which inevitably has made him more so overrated in this market probably. Um, but you can't lose sight of who Javier Baez is. And that's a, a an exciting player. Yes, a well-rounded player, but also an okay player. Hey, Tim, um, you know, obviously uh, looking forward to seeing you again at the QBC, the Queens Baseball Conference, coming up on November 13th at Mulcahy's in Wontaw. Uh, you're now a veteran of the QBC yeah. state, of the, state of the Mets panel. So uh, it's always, always good to look forward to seeing you. Well, thanks um, for the invite. Oh, anytime, anytime. Uh, the, the thing that is really interesting to me, you know, you brought it up uh, is about, you know, so much player speculation right now by fans, you know, uh, guys like you and others have, you know, written about, uh, you know, what to look for as far as players or what to expect you know, the Michael Conforto, tearful farewell, the Rich Hill uh, possibilities. Um, you're right, though, in, in that it really is going to determine who the Mets bring in as the uh, president of baseball operations and the GM. Uh, that's going to determine uh, who, the, who the manager is, although I, I believe that Sandy Alderson will make that decision, uh, if not the day of the last day of the season, probably the day after. Uh, you know, and I like Luis Rojas. I like him a lot, but I think that it's clear that the new front office should make that decision. Uh, and I think that 
having that decision already made for them uh, is something that in, you know, maybe the manager isn't the biggest, uh, you know, most important uh, addition this offseason, but certainly uh, is something to look forward to. Now, in your mind, based on what you've heard, do you think that the, uh, you know, do you think that this Billy Bean slash Bob Melvin tandem is more realistic than, let's say, uh, Theo Epstein, Theo Epstein bringing in his people? I mean, what do you hear? Uh, do you think the Mets will wait for Stearns uh, through the postseason from the Brewers? I mean, wh- what is your, you know, what is your take on what those possibilities are and what the realistic uh, expectations should be for Mets fans? Well, the Mets are going to be looking for a big fish and all of those guys are big fish. So the, the Mets are, are, you know, they would do well to snag one of those guys if they could. Um, that said, I don't know that any of those three are the obvious favorite or the obvious choice because each guy's in his own circumstances, but none of them are easy necessarily. Uh, Billy Bean is under contract. Uh, would the A's let him interview with the Mets? I don't know. Maybe. You know, it was Ken Rosenthal a couple weeks ago who threw out the idea of the Mets getting the, the tandem of Billy Bean and Bob Melvin. And, you know, I haven't seen that reported anywhere that the Mets are considering that. It was really just Ken pitching it, basically. Uh, but Ken is plugged in enough that if he's pitching it, then, uh, you know, people are listening or, or he heard that from someone. So that's a really, really intriguing idea. Um, so that is definitely a possibility. And the, the upside of that, of the bean possibility, whether or not he brings a manager with them, is that the Mets could do this sooner. Um, the A's, you know, their season's going to be over. If he gets permission to speak to the Mets, that should happen Monday, you know, Sunday night, uh, right, right. Or, 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 you know, at any point uh, with Theo, it's simpler because he's not working for a team. He's not under contract. You can just call him up if you want to. Um, but in talking to people around baseball, it's not a certainty that Theo would want this job. Um, you know, you, you can look at it through an optimistic lens or a pessimistic lens Right. And if, if you're optimistic about it and you're trying to sell Theo on the job, it is you have Steve Cohen's money. You have a big market. You have a team that hasn't won a World Series since 1986, which granted is not 1908 or 1918, as his other droughts were uh, in, in Chicago and Boston. Uh, but it's a drought nonetheless. And so to build a championship team here would be not quite at the same level as Boston or Chicago, but similar idea. You know, uh, there's no formal curse, even though uh, Mets fans might want to tell you that the team is cursed. Um, But on the negative side, it's you have Steve Cohen, who is perhaps more involved and more vocal than people anticipated a year ago. You have the best pitcher in baseball, Jacob deGrom, who is a huge question mark going into 2022. You have... uh, you know, uh, uh, yes, a sleeping giant, I guess you could say, as far as fan base and market and money-making potential there, if they could just put a winner on the field. Um, but you, you, you have 
you know, uh, there are reasons to believe that Theo, who can have probably any job in baseball that he wants, except maybe commissioner. And I say only maybe there, because if he's commissioner one day, I would believe it. Um, there's reason to believe that Theo wouldn't want this job, um, that he might be content to wait out other opportunities, whether it be with a, an ownership group or, or what have you. Um, and then David Stearns is a complicated one because the Brewers are probably going to have a longer postseason. Um, Stearns is under contract. The owner of the Brewers, Mark Atanasio, reminded everybody last weekend that Stearns is under contract. So uh, those seem like some pretty pointed comments, the way I interpreted them. Uh, so all of those guys would be excellent choices if the Mets ended up with any of them. But it's hard to pick a favorite or the most likely option right now because they all have their pluses and minuses. We're talking a lot about how the destination in New York is just, it's this, you said it, the sleeping giant, because it's a different sport, but the Knicks prove that once you start winning in New York, everyone is going to pay attention. Yeah. And you're just going to draw so many fans and everyone, you just are loved. And Tom Thibodeau is loved in New York and he, he just made a winning team. they, They didn't go far. They didn't get past the first round but they still have so much hype just because they put a winning team on, team on the field. The Mets aren't going to have that hype going into next year because of the, the fall apart they had at the end of the year. And it's a missed opportunity for Steve Cohen. And I think he's going to make another big signing this year because of that. He's going to have to make another big splash, whether it's in the front office or if it's another big player. But it's going to have to be, I think, maybe one of each. It's not going to have to be another $400 million deal but you're going to have to bring in another pretty big fish to keep these fans interested. Do you think do you agree, Tim? I think, yes, I, I do think they're going to have a big off season. I think they're going to have a massive payroll next year. You know, they, they were at 200 million and change this year. I think 240, 250, 260 is within the, well within the realm of possibility for 2022. Um, how they spend that money. I'm not sure because there are so many different areas of potential need especially if they trade from the major league roster as it exists now, um, you know, you could add a frontline starter. You could add a, one of the shortstops and put them at third base or second base or whatever. You can add a big time right fielder, you know, maybe Nick Castellanos come wants to come to city field and play right field, which wouldn't make a ton of sense to me, but just to throw somebody's name out there. Um, there are so many different ways the Mets can spend their money you know, trying to speculate at this early stage of the offseason that I am extremely, I'm extremely confident that the Mets will spend a ton of money. Um, I'm just not sure what shape that is going to take yet. Um, As far as needing to spend money to get fans interested, I, I don't, I don't think that's the case. I think like you said, when you, when you started that about the Knicks, even if there's skepticism in the beginning of the year about what the 2022 Mets will be, if they win and they show that they're good, people will be interested, whether that means signing all of the best players this winter or not. You know, it's funny, Tim. Uh, you know, we were talking online on Twitter. Uh, you know, people still seem to think that Carlos Beltran would be an answer uh, at manager. And, you know, and then the speculation is fun. Is fun. I, I don't think the Mets can afford uh, regardless of who the, I don't care if Theo comes here, Theo has a history. Let's say, let's just say for argument's sake that Theo is the number one target. 
I think of all the people that have been mentioned, I think that that would be the most intriguing to me because Theo has combined all of the Moneyball analytics and analysis and really mantra uh, and has never been afraid to hire a manager who has had experience, you know, vis-a-vis, mm-hmm. you know, Joe Madden. So uh, I really think, and, and again, I don't know. I mean, look, you, you covered the Mets. I, you covered the Mets far more than I did this year. Uh, but in the, in the short time that I did or the limited access I had with Luis Rojas, I said this earlier uh, this season that to me, I don't think he's the problem. And I don't think that, you know, I also think he's a good guy. I think he dealt with a lot. I think the media pressure on any manager, uh, especially in this Zoom world that we live in, where he has to talk to, you know, to you folks on the field, uh, you know, as well as all all of these Zooms that get, you know, and all the questions that he gets asked that he probably doesn't have the answer to because maybe he's not as much uh, in in, in the loop as, let's say, you know, uh, uh, an assistant general manager because that's the way the front office runs. Uh, in your mind, A, do you think that uh, Luis is going to move on? And B, um, do you think, as I stated earlier this season, that he could be a good manager somewhere else? Um, yeah, there, there, there are a lot of pieces to this. I would say as, from a bottom line perspective, the odds probably aren't good for Luis Rojas sticking around beyond this weekend. Um, I don't think he deserves to lose his job. I, I, he is not the problem with the 2021 Mets. I would pin that on the um, long list of underperforming players. Uh, but when you get back to the search for a head of baseball operations and you're trying to sell extremely qualified candidates on taking the job, uh, it's a, a worthwhile bullet point to have, okay, you can bring your in your own manager. You know, you don't have to inherit a manager. Um, so when Sandy Alderson and Steve Cohen are making the Luis Ross decision, I think that might be a, a pretty big factor. Um, as far as Rojas being a good manager somewhere else. I, yeah. I think he, he is a pretty solid manager. Um, I don't think it's a sort of situation where, Oh, you know, he just can't do it in New York. He needs a smaller market. I, I don't, I don't, I don't buy that at all. I think Rojas is a really smart guy. Um, the baseball acumen is obviously there. Um, I also think he's a decent guy. Um, you know, which as we've learned is not true for everybody in baseball. Yes. Uh, <laughs> very true. <laughs> um, so it's not like, Oh, you know, Rojas will win one day. He just needs to do it in, uh, Minnesota or San Diego or whatever. Um, I think he could do it in New York. I think he basically is unlucky that there's been so much change above him during his 20 months on the job. And the fact that he got the job under the circumstances that he did, because the Mets for a long time, like Luis Rojas as a major league managerial prospect, when they interviewed him in October, 2019, when they were trying to replace Mickey Calloway, they liked him then, but they figured not yet. You know, he, I think he was only 38 years old at the time. Uh, and then next thing you know, Beltran is out. Rojas is hired on basically an, an emergency basis. Um, and he ends up in the job sooner than the Mets 
kind of wanted or anticipated. So uh, a victim of circumstance, perhaps, um, but no doubt he'll get other chances and any number of roles uh, in the future. Because there's nothing tougher than trying to be a manager in New York when they're losing. There's, there's, yeah. Especially when you're trying to do your best. And you, you, again, how many times has my dad said on this podcast, he, Luis Rojas does not have full control of this team and not even the lineup. He can't even, how frustrating, like you can't even set your own lineup. What's even the point of being the manager? I mean, it's just how advanced baseball's become and so analytical and the GMs have started to run baseball teams. And a lot of uh, all the older fans and a lot of the more classic fans hate it. And honestly, I'm a younger fan and I hate it. I think the manager deserves to be in control of what happens on the field. And that's why you hire him, right? So when it comes to Luis Rojas and how he's going to expand on this, I think it's going to be, I think it's going to be a good opportunity for him. He's going to realize what it's like to play in a tough situation He's going to go on. He's going to be a good manager somewhere else because he was not the problem. He said it time and time again. He's not the problem with this team. He wasn't the problem when they fell apart. They weren't hitting. The team was underperforming to a a ridiculous extent. The The runners in scoring position average was horrendous. They could not hit with bases loaded. The amount of times I saw them, pop out or ground out with bases loaded. I, I couldn't even watch them at, at times. It was terrible. No manager is going to be able to fix that unless he has full control of the lineup and full control of what goes on on that field. And I don't think that's going to happen unless they figure out what's going on in that front office. It starts at the top. If you have dysfunction in the front office, it's not going to translate well onto the field because there's going to be dysfunction on the field. So do you think that more firings are made outside of Luis Rojas? Do you think they'll clean house a little more or do you think they'll just try to keep, they'll, they'll leave it up to whoever they hire first? Um, it's going to be up to whoever they hire. Um, what's awkward about trying to hire somebody for that spot right now is the Mets just made all of these changes to their front office, right? They have an acting GM in Zach Scott, who's sort of in purgatory. We don't know what's going to happen with him, but the odds aren't looking good for him either. They have two assistant GMs, Bryn Alderson, who is Sandy's son, and Ian Levin, who has been with the Mets for 15 years, who just over the summer were promoted to assistant GM. You have new player development leadership. You have new analytics department leadership. All of this has happened since Steve Cohen bought the team 11 months ago. So when you hire a new number one guy, Normally, that guy can clean house if he wants. He can partially clean house if he wants. He can do pretty much whatever he wants to shape his own inner circle, etc. And But the Mets have basically everything that they want except the top guy. So how much leeway is that person, when he is hired, going to have to make those sorts of decisions? Probably pretty significant leeway. But I also think when he talks to Steve Cohen, when he talks to Sandy Alderson, the terms are going to be, we like a lot of the other infrastructure and leadership ladder that they have. Um, So that's going to be a really tricky and honestly kind of awkward situation 
you know, especially because so many of those people are so new to the organization or to their current jobs um, that it's going to be tough. And to, to your point about the if, if there's dysfunction in the front office, there's going to be dysfunction on the field. Uh, I, I agree with you. I think that was for sure the case with the Mets of years past. Uh, I'm not so sure that it was the case this year because for, for a while there, they seemed to be a pretty smooth running machine, you know, after some tumult, let's say, over the winter. Um, but Zach Scott ran day-to-day operations. He had, uh, you know, his, his inner circle of Bryn Alderson and Ian Levin and uh, others involved. Um, and for a while there, the Mets were coming along pretty good from a baseball decisions, acquisitions, transactions, et cetera, standpoint. You know, think back to late in the offseason, after Jared Porter was fired, after Zach Scott was elevated to acting GM, the de facto GM, the Mets made some pretty solid moves, right? They signed Aaron Luke, Jonathan VR, Taiwan Walker, um, Kevin Pillar and Albert Almora, who weren't as successful, but had their moments this year. Um, and then you get into the season and the Mets had all those injuries in May. And then you pick up guys like, uh, Billy McKinney and some of those other stop gaps, Rich Hill, even there were some pretty savvy, successful moves mixed in in there. So I don't know that the front office is a problem other than there's nobody running it right now, (laughs) which sounds ridiculous now that I say it out loud, but, um, it's just a weird, weird circumstance. The Mets have twisted themselves into. I, I, I think that that's a great point, Tim. And one last one for me is, is that, you know, I, I always rely on history, you know, to, to teach lessons, you know. And so I'm writing about baseball. I often go back to successful front office operations, you know, successful hires like Frank Cashin, like Nelson Doubleday. When Nelson Doubleday bought the Mets, you know, and they hired Frank Cashin and said, you know, Frank was like, are you going to leave me alone? And Nelson Doubleday, Nelson Doubleday said, absolutely. That was the case from 1980 until the end of 1986. Right. And Cashin was basically able to do whatever he wanted to do. He held on to Joe Torre. You know, Joe Torre did have a uh, pre- previous relationship with Fred Wilpon. Uh, so there, there was, you know, I don't want to say that there was a lot of pressure to keep Joe, but I knew Frank you know, just on all the research I've done, you know, Frank was willing to assess that first year and even that second year, you know, was willing to assess and to see what little pieces needed to be made. And he, he really focused on the draft. He really focused on how he could rebuild. Cause he said, look, we inherited a disaster. Mm-hmm. So we had to like the, you know, the, the next president of baseball operations, the next, and you, you, you made this point yourself they're not inheriting a disaster. Maybe right. they're inherit, inheriting a PR disaster, <laughs> you know, but they're not inheriting a, uh, a talent, uh, you know, a, a talent situation. There is depth in the system. Uh, there is uh, certainly uh, the ability to build almost right away. So I think that the one point I want to make and the last question I want to ask is that, do you think it's harder to win with the money ball type of approach in New York than it is in other places because of, because of that media pressure, because of that fan pressure, 
like what Jack alluded to with having a manager that is like a leader or having a manager that is, you know, somebody that, you know, like I used to remember, uh, I don't know how far back you go from knowing this, but when Bobby Valentine was in that dugout, I always felt he was the smartest person in the room. And I felt he was mostly above reproach for the mm-hmm. moves that he would make and the, the, the way that he would talk about the game and the way he handled the media, even the ones he didn't like, you know, and I think that's important. Uh, do you think it's important? Do you think that it, it is harder to do like old school baseball in New York? Uh, excuse me. Uh, is it harder to do new school baseball when so many people want old school baseball? Uh, I don't think so. No, because old school, new school, whatever, people ultimately only care about winning. And I think if you look at the modern baseball landscape, all of the successful organizations, all of the teams who contend for the postseason, go to the postseason year to year, are modern, analytically savvy teams. You know, and and Moneyball has sort of become like a catch-all phrase, uh, over the last 20 years for, you know, new school or analytics or whatever you want to call it. But the reality is Moneyball won. Uh, All teams are trying to do now is find the right balance between uh, people skills and analytics and scouting and numbers, right? Trying to find the right blend. Um, But, you know, the old, like to take Bob Melvin and the A's, for example. The A's obviously are the poster child. They were Moneyball in 20, 2002. Uh, the, you know, what they've done with their minuscule payroll is, is extremely impressive. Even teams with big payrolls, Yankees, Dodgers, uh, Red Sox most years, right? They're pretty analytically inclined organizations. So, uh, There aren't really any, uh, like, identity or internal struggles anymore about pulling in one direction or the other. It's all about which organization can meet in the middle with itself, with its various front office personnel, and find the best blend. Um, On the field, in-game decisions, yeah, a lot of times those are analytically driven. And sometimes it really feels like maybe the manager or the pitching coach or whomever should have a little bit of feel. We've seen that a couple of times with the Mets this year, right? You know, forget the numbers for a second and just look at what's in front of your eyes. Um, And maybe you would make a different decision, right? The Blake Snell, pulling Blake Snell in the playoffs last year when the Rays did that, Um, you know, should they have ridden him more? Uh, So is it harder to do money ball in New York? I say no, uh, because New York is about winning and Moneyball is about finding ways, ways to win, you know? Well, thanks for ruining my narrative. I'm going to bring this <laughs> up again at the QBC, Tim. <laughs> Maybe at the QBC, I'll, I'll have a more eloquent uh, answer than I just had. <laughs> well, it's been great having you on, Tim. This is another great episode on the Gotham Sports Machine. So always great talking baseball with you. Absolutely. Thank you, Jack. And and thank you, Mark. Take care, Tim.